In just a few moments, I'm going to read to you from John 10 about Jesus being the good shepherd. But if you're like me, we all live in the world and, and notice regularly and feel all the time that there's this narrative that says um, that love is conditional, that at the end of your life or at the end of even a day, you are what you accomplish. And if you just work a little bit harder, you can do a little bit more, and you can be a little bit better than other people. And when we gather for worship, we are being reminded that love, the love of God, is unconditional. That who we are is found not in what we accomplish, but on what Jesus has accomplished for us. And doing things to be a little bit better than other people is swallowed up in the fact that God is using us to love others and not to think of ourselves as better than other people, but to humble ourselves and to think of others as better than us. Hear this from Jesus. He says, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I came that we, that you, that me, that we would have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Beloved, let's respond to this as we sing, Hail to the Lord's Anointed. Let's sing to our Jesus. I'd love to look with you this morning in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, certainly you can turn there. The verses I'm going to read this morning, oh, I just gasped, oh, that was weird, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, the verses I'm going to read are in the bulletin and should be on the screen behind me. As you're turning there, I just wanted to, uh, for those of you that are visiting perhaps for the first time, just wanted to set the framework of what you're getting into. And for those of you that have been here, hopefully to remind you of the framework of what we're looking at this summer. Uh, we are rummaging through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' sermon. Uh, it covers in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and we are just working our way through those chapters this summer together. Uh, we started at the end. So if you want to think back for a moment, we started at chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. Uh, that's the end of Jesus' sermon, and that's where he's really communicating that what he's after in the whole thing is that he's after the foundation of our lives, and he's telling us that there is no other way to live life other than building on the foundation of the rock, which is Jesus. And you might remember that he's doing that because there's a counterfeit that's out there. And the counterfeit isn't real, even though it looks like the real thing, it's not real. And he wants us to know that there's only one way to live life, and that's based upon the foundation of Jesus. And if you're worried, if you're thinking to yourself, well, I, maybe I'm counterfeit, I'm happy to talk with you, but I will tell you this, the very fact that you're wondering whether or not you're counterfeit means you're not. Hear that, take that in. Because when you think you're counterfeit, where do you go? Back to Jesus. 
So if you think you're the counterfeit, you're not. He's writing to those who will never think that they're counterfeit, who think they've got it all together. All right? So that's where we started, at the end. Then we started, excuse me, then we went to the beginning, and we looked at the first 16 verses of chapter 5. And in those verses, God is showing us that he is building a community. He is recreating individuals and recreating a community that is formed and shaped by the cross. That's what God's doing. 1 through 16 of chapter 5, God is recreating individuals and recreating a community that's formed and shaped by the cross, by what Jesus has done. And then we started last week with this middle section, uh, which is chapter 5, verses 17 through chapter 7, verse 12. And that's where we are now. And last week we anchored in Jesus' view of the Bible, Jesus' view of the Old Testament, who he was, how he came to fulfill all that, and everything else is the outworking of 5 through 17 in this middle section. Now, I also want to say this. When we hear the Sermon on the Mount, for whatever reason, we instinctively think, okay, here are my marching orders, and I feel like I need to say that over and over and over. Because whenever we hear that this is Jesus' sermon, if you're somewhat familiar with this, and if you're not, it's totally fine. But if you're at all remotely familiar with this, you hear things like, turn the other cheek, uh, do unto others. And you immediately think, okay, here's what it takes for me to be a good person. You hear those things and immediately think, all right, here's our marching orders. Here's what we got to go do. Here's what we're supposed to do in order to be a good person. And I want you to know, that Jesus is pastoring us through these chapters. And the choices that we have are not just these two. On the one hand, the choice that we, uh, on one hand, we're not supposed to hear this and think, you know what, Jesus is the best way of controlling my life. So I'm just going to take what he says and, and do it. And then if I do that appropriately, then I will receive the blessing. And I will receive really what I want. That's the way of living life as if to say, you know, Jesus is the best way to control my life. I listen to him. I take it in. I do what he says. And then I get what I want from him. That's not really the message of the gospel at all. But how many times do we hear things that way? Here's the other option that we often think of. Well, if Jesus is saying this, then I'm just supposed to be absolutely passive and do nothing. And those aren't our only two options. There's a third option that is throughout the Bible that Jesus is trying to communicate to us here. Here it is. I am supposed to live out what God is working in. I'm supposed to live out what God is working in. Therefore, when I hear these words, I'm supposed to think to myself, I need to put on Jesus. And these verses and this sermon is about what it means to have the foundation of Jesus and then to build on that foundation. This is what it looks like to put on Christ, to go back to the foundation all the time and then from that foundation to build. Build. Does that make sense? And that is a lot different 
than thinking, Jesus says this, I go do it, I get what I want. It's a lot different than saying, well, Jesus is going to do this and I do nothing. There's something else. And that something else is what Jesus is trying to get into us. Go to the foundation relentlessly in our lives. Go to Jesus relentlessly in our lives. And then build from him. Continue to put him on every day. Make sense? I know that's kind of a long reading introduction, but it's good, I think, to continue to repeat that stuff. All right, all that to say, now let's look at Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Uh, Listen to these words. This comes from the mind uh, and the heart of Jesus himself. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's ask the Lord's help to understand and work this stuff into us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to believe, but we ask that you would help our unbelief. Holy Spirit, we want to know the truth, but there's a lot in us that would rather live some truth than a big lie. Father, we we want to believe that you love us. We often struggle to think that we have to do something in order to get your love or to keep it. So we pray that you would just remove all that from us and just overwhelm us with a sense of your love and care, overwhelm us with the fullness of the Savior. Holy Spirit, expose the errors that we live by and continue to compel us to live by truth. And we pray this for your glory, God. We pray this for your glory and our good. In the name of Jesus, amen. This morning, if you look in your bulletin, we're looking at three things. Something that's visible, something that's invisible, and something beyond. But before we look at that, I need to tell you something. I am a murderer. I'm a murderer. I want you to know that you are a murderer too. I want you to know that we are all murderers. There is not one person that escapes these verses. Not one person. Jesus begins with something that is really visible. Look at what he says in the first verse, verse 21. You have said that you have heard that it was said to those of old, you, are, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
He starts off with something visible. He says something that is so obvious. We all know that outside of self-defense and taking someone's life because of self-defense, it's wrong. Anything other than self-defense and taking someone's life is wrong. Murder is wrong. It's obvious. It's clear. It's self-evident. There's no doubt. Outside of self-defense, we are just, murder is wrong. But what Jesus does is he's saying to us there is something more. There's something much, much more. There's more to murder than just senselessly taking someone's life, senselessly ending someone's life. There's more to murder than that. And Jesus is using that visible, what's obvious, in order to set up the less obvious, to set up what's not visible. Look at the beginning of verse 22 and the beginning of verse 23. You have heard it said, verse 22, then verse 23, but I say to you, Jesus is contrasting what is true with what they had heard, what we have heard, what we typically think. Because we would admit that murder is wrong outside of self-defense. Murder is wrong. It's never right. But Jesus is pressing further. Remember what religious leaders had been saying. Remember what his disciples had been taught. Remember what the pervading idea was. Remember that the scribes and the Pharisees were considered experts in the law. Remember that they distilled the law of God down to 600 and roughly 13 commands of God. There were clear prohibitions or clear commands. And they took those 613-ish and they decided to add 1,500 to it. And they thought, you know what? These 613, clear in the word of God. But here's 1,500 more. And if we buy into these 1,500, then we will not break any of the 613. You follow me? Remember, that was the teaching. Remember that people knew, you know what? If we just follow these extra laws, if we just follow what they say, we can avoid sin. We can avoid error. We, it, it, was, it was their whole way of being their own savior, being our own savior. You know what I mean, right? You know what it's like to have clear rules and think to yourself, you know what, if I just add to that a little bit more, I won't even get close. It's the way that we become our own savior. It's the way they were teaching to become your own savior. It was their way of relating to people. Here's how we relate to one another, based on what we add to God's word. And their rules were so restrictive. Their rules were so comprehensive that people thought that they could keep the law. They thought if we just follow all these things, we'll never sin. We'll be able to save ourselves. This is how we relate to other people. And if we just follow all of this, we will keep the law. So therefore, as long as they didn't physically take someone's life, you know what they thought? I'm good. Beloved, don't we feel the same way? 
Don't we think if, if I don't physically take someone's life, or if I have to, as long as it's a matter of self-defense, I'm good? Jesus is saying, oh, you've heard a lot of this, but let me tell you something more. And then he goes on to explain it in verse 23 and following. This is what he says. He says, if you keep anger in your heart, it's the same thing. It is murder. If you harbor hatred in your heart, if you are resentful to others, it is murder. Anger is not innocent. Jesus is saying, anger is not innocent. There are things that are going on in your heart and in my heart. They're invisible. If you harbor anger, you're a murderer. I'm a murderer. I know I told you to start off with that I was a murderer. I want to tell you how I've done it. One of the hardest things I've ever done in my life is start a ministry from scratch on a campus. It was really difficult. When you start out a ministry, and when you start something from scratch, you literally are doing work of just meeting people. And I did that for a year and a half. And I met people. I met about six or eight people that were interested in talking about the gospel and wanted to get together and study the Bible. It was great. Ended up at the end of spring semester, I ended up being able to have a Bible study in the dorm room. It was fantastic. I loved it. It gave me such excitement for the fall and starting things in the fall, again, with those students, only to find out that the next fall, none of them wanted to meet anywhere other than the dorm room. And of the eight students that were coming, three of them were interested in doing it again. So I had to almost start over. Then you meet some more people, and you meet some more people. And before long, you start having critical mass. But what happens is, and I mean this absolutely sarcastically, there's competition in Christian circles. You ever notice that? I'm sure that you have. And there were other ministries on campus. And there were times in which they would try to take students from me, like take my students which is absolutely another problem that I had, thinking that the students that I had were actually mine. They were never mine. They aren't today. They never were then. But there was another ministry that started trying to take the students that I had gathered. And you know what? I can't even say that. I didn't even do that. God was doing that. You can see how ingrained it is in me to like live for myself and talk for myself. I'm sorry. Having you to repent of that before you. God was doing all of it. But when this other ministry started hijacking some of the students that I was getting to know, I murdered that dude in my heart hundreds of times. Because my students would come to me and they would say, hey, so-and-so wants to go to lunch. What do I do? <laughs> and I was so torn I had to say, well, you got to go. Go to lunch. Check it out. Do it. That was really hard. I had to die in order to say that. But when that happened over and over for semester after semester after semester, I had a lot of hatred in my heart. And anytime this particular person was around in a, in a cafeteria or eating place, 
if he was ever with another student, he would make fun of me. Relentlessly. Always did. He would make fun of the way that I talked about ministry. On and on. I can give you example after example after example. I murdered that guy hundreds and hundreds of times. And I don't say that as someone who is proud of that. I say that to you to know how deep this is. This is what Jesus is talking about. If you harbor hatred in your heart, you've murdered. I'm a murderer. You ever harbored hatred in your heart towards someone? You ever not liked what they did to you and you resented them? Beloved, we murdered. We're murderers. Jesus says it's not only if you harbor hatred in your heart. Look at what else he says. If you hurl an insert, insult to them, or if you call someone a fool, you've also murdered. See, this is what's getting at here. If you look at these verses, 22 and following, he says, whoever insults his brother in the middle of verse 22 will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He's putting these two things together. Let me explain this as quickly as I can. The Bible defines what a fool is. It gives us a very clear definition of it in the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And there are even times in which we are foolish. It's true. And Jesus is not contradicting any of those. He wrote everything in the Bible. It was all about him. He's not contradicting himself here. What he is saying is there is an inappropriate posture, and it is really serious. We can have an inappropriate posture toward others. Let me explain. Do you think of people as good for nothing? When you insult them, what you're saying is they're good for nothing. If you call them a fool, what we're saying is they're good for nothing. Do you ever treat people as if they are nobodies and then the other people are somebodies? Do you ever have, do I ever have this posture that looks at other people as if I am superior? You see, that's always the accompanying link, right? Because to look down on other people implies that we think, well, I'm more mature than they are. I'm more mature in my faith. I'm more mature as a human being. I'm more mature, whatever, as a parent. I'm more mature, whatever. You see, to look down on other people is to have this elevated view of self as well. I'm more sophisticated. I'm more knowledgeable. I'm more put together. And when those things fit in which you're looking down on others because we're thinking of ourselves as better than other people, Jesus is, says, Jesus is saying that type of posture is serious. He's saying it's murder too. And then he adds something else. Look at what he says in verse 23 through 26. He not only wants us Instead of being a people that not only have a true sense of murder and what that actually is, he not only wants us to have a real sense of what the law of God is, but he also wants us to promote life and peace. Look at what he says in 23 through 26. He gives two illustrations. 
to positively say how he wants us to live. If you're in worship and you're about to give something, but you know that fellowship is broken, go to that person. Go to that person. Be proactive. Go to them and seek them out. Be willing to talk. Be willing to communicate. And here's a second illustration. If you're in conflict with someone, even when you're on the way to court, you can imagine how somewhat ridiculous that sounds, right? I don't know if you've ever been to court before, but I've never known someone who has traveled to court with the, with the person that they were against. <laughs> Jesus is making a point. He's saying even at the last possible moment, even if you're traveling together, settle the dispute, even at the last second, at the last moment, take every moment, utilize every moment possible to reconcile and to seek peace to seek communication. There was a man who lived a number of years ago to try to put all this together where Jesus is saying, look, there's visible thing, we know that it's wrong. Then there's all this invisible stuff going on, harboring hatred, having a posture toward others in which we think we're better than others. At the same time, we have an elevated sense of who we are for all kinds of reasons. And then he says, well, here's positively how I want you to live. Seek people out. Even settle it and reconcile at the last possible moment. Jesus is trying to get us to understand what I think a guy said a long time ago. And he said this. We ought to be a people that recognize that the seed of every known sin resides in our heart. We ought to be a people in which we affirm and admit all the time that the seeds of every known sin are within our heart, meaning we all, we all murder. We're all culpable. We all find it easy to harbor anger toward others. We all find it incredibly difficult to go to someone else, set down whatever we're doing, and then sit down with someone else and communicate. We all find that very hard, don't we? especially when we think that we're right. We all find it hard to reconcile with somebody even at the last possible moment, to still be open to that. Now, it needs to be said, here are my caveats, it needs to be said that we can't, two things. One, we cannot use this passage to manipulate and bulldoze people. We can't. We cannot have the mentality that said, I was wrong here, forgive me now. If you've had a lot of experiences in the church, there are times in which this has been used to manipulate and bulldoze people. And it's not the way that Jesus is intending at all. And then here's the other caveat. It's this idea that we find later in the scriptures that says, as much as is possible with you, be at peace with all men. As much as is possible with you, be at peace with all men. You see, what that is saying 
is that believe it or not, there are some people that you can't get along with. But as much as is possible with you, try. There are some people that you just will not be able to get along with, whether it's because all they want to do is fight, whether it's because they are absolutely obstinate at their core, whether it's because they're always pointing and never asking. There are some people that you will not be able to get along with. And when you run into those folks, there's so much going on underneath that you can't even imagine. And if this is you, there's a lot that's going on, but there's nothing that's too much for the grace of God to handle and change and renovate and make new. Something visible, something invisible, something beyond. Recognize Jesus' point of view here. As he writes these, as he says these words, he is not inviting us to think about these verses from the standpoint of other people. He's not saying, think about murder. Now, now think about it from this person, you know, over here or that person over there. He is inviting all of us to think about it from a personal, first-person standpoint. Am I harboring? Am I withholding? Am I not communicating? Am I not seeking peace? Am I not seeking welfare? He's asking us to reflect. He's demanding us to reflect on ourselves, our own lives, not point out others. You see, no one is supposed to escape this. No one. No one can. The hope is that we genuinely receive Jesus' teaching. The hope is that we realize there's no way we can live like this. The hope is that we would realize I don't live like Jesus is saying. And friend, if this is the first time you've ever thought about the law of God in this way, this is what the law actually does. It's not meant for you to add stuff to so you can never sin and therefore be your own savior. The law constantly exposes sin in us, constantly. We never get to the point in which we can say, I'm never murdered. You know, it's been 30 years since I murdered anybody. It just doesn't happen. The law always exposes our sin, always. But we need something beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. We need something beyond. Remember, what it, remember how to think about righteousness. It's that thing that we go for to find approval, self-worth. It's, it's that thing in which if we just had it in all of these ways, then we'd be complete, then we'd be at peace. You can think of it this way. Righteousness is when you do the right thing in the right way, at the right time. You ever had one of those days where you could check all those boxes? Righteousness is when you do the right thing in the right way at the right time because you can do the right thing and you can do it in the right way but do it at the wrong time and it's totally wrong. And you can do the right thing not in the right way at the right time and it's totally wrong. 
I don't know a single day that I've done the right thing in the right way at the right time for everything. You? We need something that enables us to live as if we've said the right thing, done the right thing, in the right way, at the right time. We need that. And you see, this is exactly what Jesus did for us. When you go back through and read these verses, what you end up getting a glimpse of and a foreshadowing of is what Jesus was doing at the moment and what he would ultimately do for us. You see, Jesus left heaven. You remember when he gave that illustration of, hey, if you're, if you're in worship and you know something's going on over here, stop what you're doing and go to them? Oh, yeah. Well, Jesus was in heaven, and he decided to leave, to come and pursue us. Isn't that amazing? That's what he did. He left heaven to come pursue you and me, to pursue rebellious people who were holding a grudge, and we were totally against God, thinking we're right. Jesus left heaven to pursue and reconcile us to God. And our condition was so bad that as we were walking along together, Jesus with us on the road, metaphorically speaking, to borrow the illustration here, what Jesus tells us at that last possible moment is, hey, we're going to the judge. And what I'm going to tell the judge is, you take all of Dave's problems and you put them on me. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. As we are all moving toward ultimately standing before the judge, Jesus is walking with us along that way, and he's saying, well, this is the message I've got for the judge. You're totally wrong, Dave. I'm totally right, and I'm going to take care of all of your wrong. And I left heaven to come and do it. And you see, because Jesus is like this, because he actually lives this out and has lived this out for us, we can too. When we receive Jesus and his spirit is working in our lives, the spirit will make us more like him. Because Jesus did this for Dave, because Jesus did this for you, you can live this way too to continue to receive him. And his spirit will move us and change us and make us more like him. It's inevitable. It has to happen. And I want to tell you a story about the healing power of living this out. I want to tell you the story of a self-righteous pastor. There's one thing about this self-righteous pastor that he hated more than anything else in the ministry. And that was this that he hated when he set up appointments and people showed up late. It bothered him to no end. He couldn't stand it. Are you like that? Some of you like that in your schedule? Can't stand it if somebody's a little bit late? That was this guy. So he had a wedding at 7.30 one day, and he decided that he was going to show up at the wedding 15 minutes early. So he showed up at 7.15, only to realize that the wedding actually started at 7. So you know what he had to do? Sit in the back. He was absolutely humiliated and undone because the one thing that bothered him more than anything else was what? When people were late to a meeting. 
So here he was sitting at the back, and thankfully he was performing the wedding with an assistant. So the assistant actually showed up on time, and he had to do the whole thing by himself on the spur of the moment. And as he sat there, he was completely undone, thinking back through everything in his life, absolutely humiliated. And at the end of the service, after everything was over, the bride and groom came to him and said, don't even worry about being late. You have invested in us for months and years. And we are so thankful for your counseling. We know that you love us. We know that you would have been here if you hadn't made that little mistake. We get it. We just want you to know we are so glad you're here. And we want you to come to the reception and party with the rest of us and have a great time. Because we're not leaving and we still want you to pour into our lives. We are completely good. And his response was, that healed me that instant. Because they had been more gracious to me and showed me the gospel than I had known before. And beloved, that's what ex- exactly what Jesus does for us, is that he heals us. And you know, that's what brings us to the table. 